Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 15, Those Long August Days. Last time, we took a bit of a detour from our original chronology by jumping ahead to November 1914, when the escape of the Goibin in Breslau enticed the Ottoman Empire to declare war against the Entente Allies. But now that we are finally into the war proper, I thought I would start by giving you all a heads up to what I have planned going forward. Until now, we have been looking at things as they occurred chronologically, from the unification of Germany to the assassination of Ferdinand, but we are going to have to deviate from that approach as we get deeper into the war itself. Too many things were happening at the same time that it makes using a straight timeline a bit muddy. So heading forward, we will spend one or two, possibly three episodes, talking about individual aspects of the war before moving on to something new. So for example, the next two episodes, beginning this week, will focus on the opening months on the Western Front, starting with the invasion of Belgium and ending with the Battle of Ypres that November. Following that, we will swing over to the east and look at the Russians, Serbs, and Austrians, and how things are unfolding there. That should bring us nicely to the end of 1914, but before making the jump into 1915, I will take another episode or two talking about events elsewhere, like the conflicts in Africa, East Asia, but also the European home fronts. I've decided to do it this way because it will allow us to take in little bits at a time, instead of jumping around from place to place, which frankly would be too confusing and just a little bit annoying. To begin our discussion of the Western Front, we should start with just a brief recap of the Schlieffen Plan, so we can all get off on the right foot. Back in 1906, Alfred von Schlieffen, the then Chief of Staff of the German Imperial Army, had surmised a plan in the event of a war with France. The Schlieffen Plan called for the bulk of the German army, over one million men, to attack the French by first invading Belgium, then wheeling south and capturing Paris within six weeks. By going through Belgium, Schlieffen had hoped to avoid the French counterattack, which he had predicted would be directed eastward into the former French provinces of Alsace-Lorraine. From its formal inception, the German High Command, or OHL for short, had gone all in on this. Schlieffen had calculated and timed it down to the minute details, and although it was a very ambitious plan which had yet to be tested, few doubted the soundness of its theory, and every corps and army commander was instructed to know the plan by heart. But as we have previously discussed, the situation in 1914 was quite different than 1906. Schlieffen had retired and was replaced by Helmuth von Moltke the Younger, a close and personal favorite of the Kaiser Wilhelm. Moltke lacked the same calculating mind of his predecessor, and may have been an alright choice as a peacetime leader, but soon found himself commanding Germany's largest army in the most violent conflict Europe had ever seen, something he was not quite cut out for. As we saw during the episodes on the July Crisis, Germany had begun mobilization with Schlieffen's old plan in the top drawer, but there was one big omission which the old general had not factored in in his original design, and that of course was the resurgence of Russia. During Schlieffen's day, Russia had retreated from the international scene to do some soul-searching after their disastrous war with the Japanese. But by 1914, economic assistance from the French and British, and emboldened by the success of the Balkan League, the Russian bear had regrown some claws, and was looking to re-establish itself in Europe. The idea of fighting a two-front war against France and Russia had been the boogeyman of the OHL since the days of Bismarck. So in August 1914, as the German armies were massing in preparation for the Belgian invasion, the success of the plan was even more paramount. Moltke had made it clear to his staff and senior commanders that failure to capture Paris in six weeks would give the Russian war machine the time it needed to complete mobilization. Once fully mobilized, Berlin feared that the Slavic steamroller could field four to six million men and absorb any Russian or Austrian counterattacks through sheer numerical force. The big concern for Moltke that summer was how the Belgians would respond to the German invasion. 
During the July crisis, Berlin had hoped slash assumed that the Belgians would let them pass through without opposition. But if the Belgians chose to fight, they could prove a formidable obstacle and slow the German advance, thus endangering the success of the whole operation. If you are listening at home, there is a map up at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com in case you are wondering where these places we'll be talking about are located. I know my map making skills leave much to be desired, but it is much simpler to make a custom map which follows along with the episode as opposed to uploading one having to explain through all the details. The Belgians, however, would be ready to meet the German advance. In 1890, an engineer by the name of Henri Bramont, I hope I pronounced that correctly, designed and built a series of fortresses around two strategic points one at Namur, and the other, more famous one, at Liege. We will be talking about Liege more today, but both positions were protected by a ring of fortresses which surrounded them like a belt. A total of 12 fortresses were built at Liege, and another 9 at Namur. Each fort was heavily armed with quick-firing cannons and 200mm howitzers, with a garrison of around 5 to 800 men. Roughly 70,000 troops of the 200,000-strong Belgian army were at Liege alone. In order for the German invasion to work, the Liege fortifications would have to be taken, as they were protecting a key railway hub which, if captured, would give the Germans a new supply route in order to bring in men and materials to support their armies once they broke into France. Despite their formidability, German general staff had already figured out what their weaknesses were. Since 1906, the same year of Schlieffen's retirement, the forts at Liege and Namur had begun to fall into slight disrepair. A strong anti-militarist faction within Brussels had resulted in defense spending cutbacks, and thus the forts had not been given the proper maintenance. This opportunity was not lost on Berlin. In 1909, the development of a new, heavier artillery cannon was rolled off the assembly line. This new howitzer, affectionately nicknamed Big Bertha, weighed 43 tons and was capable of firing an 1,800-pound explosive shell, designed for the sole purpose of punching through Liege's now inadequate concrete skin. The Western Front, the muddy, rat-infested quagmire we all know and love, officially began on 2.30 in the morning on August 6, 1914. Two German armies, the first commanded by Alexander von Gluck and the second by Karl von Bülow, no relation to the former chancellor, crossed the border between Liege and the Dutch frontier. It is important to remember that when we were talking about armies in 1914, we were talking about hundreds of thousands of men. Gluck and Bülow's armies consisted of over 300,000 combat troops each, including cavalry, engineers, and artillery gunners, so these are no small fish here. Over 500,000 German soldiers walked into Belgium that day, and the war was just 48 hours old. Armed with the new Big Berthas, the German army would pound the walls of Liege into the ground. The bravery of the Belgian defenders would not be enough. Day and night, overwhelming artillery would eventually take its toll, as the battered garrisons cannot hold against the detonating cannonade. The last fort at Liege would fall on August the 16th, but before then the railway lines had already fallen into German hands. The first battle of the Western Front would cost the Belgians 30,000 casualties, while German losses were significantly lower, around 8,000. Unfortunately for the Belgians, the fall of Liege did not grant them clemency from the invading Germans. Based on the time-sensitive nature of the Schlieffen Plan, the invading army took the mantra that any obstacle, real or imagined, would be dealt with severe consequences, and in many cases, this resulted in Belgian civilians becoming prime targets of German anger. One of the ironies of the Western Front is that we tend to think it was fought outside of the civilian sphere, and certainly there is some degree of truth to that. While few of the major cities were damaged and civilians either fled or had been evacuated from the battlefields, the early days of the Western Front do contain a dark chapter in the relationship between combat troops and civilians. Within the rank and file, rumors have begun to spread that Belgian civilians were forming into armed partisan groups, 
and were planning to ambush patrols and auxiliary regiments in the rear. While there was little evidence to suggest that this was happening at a mass scale, fuel was added to the fire. As the two German armies advanced, they frequently encountered blown bridges, dismantled railways, or entire towns completely abandoned. To the average German soldier, in his first taste of war and in a foreign country, it is easy to see how this could cause imaginations to run wild. However, in order to avoid delays, senior staff had made it clear that anyone brave enough to stand between them and their objective would be met with harsh repercussions. Von Bülow himself egged his troops to, quote, act severely against any manifestation of resistance, unquote, and that they did. Historical landmarks, churches, and in some cases entire villages were burned to the ground. Civilians, too, became targets. On August the 25th, the town of Dinant, just south of the Ardennes Forest, saw 700 civilians shot, and this scene was repeated throughout numerous towns with hundreds of men, women, and children becoming victims. News of the German atrocities began to leak, and Allied propaganda were quick to latch on. Outlandish and ultimately untrue stories of soldiers tossing newborn babies into rivers or pregnant women being used as bayonet practice served to strengthen the Allied war effort and added to the image of a barbarous German Hun raping defenseless little Belgium. There is a famous recruitment poster from the United States, which I have uploaded to the Great War Podcast.podbean.com, which represents Germany as an ape-like brute carrying a distressed female hostage, purposefully invoking the memory of the Belgian massacres. But of course, in doing so, Allied propaganda did much to discredit the realities of what was happening on the ground, as it became difficult to tell the difference between what was truth and what was pure sensationalism. But through the work of scholars such as John Horn and Alan Kramer, who in 2001 published German Atrocities 1914, A History of Denial, we can now discern between the myths and realities of what happened in Belgium during those first weeks in August. But I do want to point out that the Germans were not the only ones guilty of civilian massacres. The Austrians, Russians, and especially the Ottoman Turks all have their share of guilt. But in the case of Belgium, this was something relatively new to Western Europe. In a time of imperialism when white Anglo-Saxon society placed itself at the top of the cultural hierarchy, the deliberate targeting of fellow European civilians should have been a red flag to observers that the war unfolding before them was going to be unlike anything they had seen before. By the second week of August, the German conquest of Belgium was nearing completion. Brussels would fall on August the 20th, but by then the first stage of the Schlieffen Plan had been completed, and Mulkey was ready to begin Phase 2, which was the invasion of France. As the first and second armies posed on the frontier, they were soon joined by three others, one in Luxembourg and two in the former French provinces of Alsace-Lorraine, bringing the invasion force up to 1.5 million men. In Paris, French command knew the attack was imminent, but had grossly underestimated its strength. The supreme commander of the French army was a guy by the name of Joseph Joffrey. Joffrey, like Schlieffen, had his own ideas on how the French would respond to a war with Germany. Joffrey's plan, codenamed Plan 17, called for nearly one million men to make what amounted to be a blind charge into Alsace-Lorraine. The idea behind this was that while Schlieffen had hoped to avoid the French counterattack, Joffrey had hoped to undercut the German attack, strike through Alsace-Lorraine, and then drive deep into the German Rhineland. Joffrey had staked that the presence of nearly one million French soldiers suddenly appearing on German soil would be enough to send some helmets spinning. The problem with Plan 17 was that it required the bulk of the French army to be deployed south of the Ardennes Forest thus exposing a 178-kilometer gap in the north between the English Channel and the Meuse River. So when the German advance began on August the 14th, Joffrey discovered that his armies were caught facing 500,000 German troops, already positioned in Alsace-Lorraine, but another 800,000 coming from the north and through Luxembourg. 
But what turned out to be a blessing in disguise is that while the Schlieffen plan was an exhaustive study of timing and logistics, which required everything to run according to schedule, Plan 17 ultimately had no real objective. It allowed Joffrey to modify at a moment's notice to account for any unexpected threats. Upon realizing the precariousness of his position, Joffrey was able to redirect his armies to meet the enemy coming from the north in Luxembourg. In four simultaneous but separate engagements, the first contest between the French and German forces began on August the 14th, in what has collectively been dubbed the Battle of the Frontiers. The four main battles, fought at Lorraine, the Ardennes, Chaloy, and Mons, resulted in the German army mauling the disorganized and confused French opposition. Only at Lorraine were the French able to check the advance to some manageable degree. Overwhelming artillery and the experience of fighting in Belgium had given the Germans an invaluable advantage. The Battle of Mons is of particular significance, as the volunteer British expeditionary force, which had begun to land on August the 12th, got their first taste of action. Commanded by Field Marshal Sir John French, the BEF would play an important role in the battle, as the inexperienced BEF troops managed to hold back the German advance, thus allowing the French 5th Army to retreat south before making their own withdrawal to Le Cateau. The battles of the frontiers would be a disaster for the Entente allies. Across the Western Theatre, the French army and the British Expeditionary Force were in full retreat. Facing annihilation otherwise, Joffrey was forced to order his armies to withdraw towards Paris. Without going into the gory details, the casualty lists tell us all we need to know about the savagery of the fighting. The frontier battles would end by August the 25th, and in just nine days of fighting, 260,000 French soldiers had been killed, wounded, or missing, while German losses were just slightly below. Out of the 30,000 sent in at Mons, the BEF would lose 1,200, and following a second retreat from Le Cateau would take another 10,000. If you want to stack these numbers in comparison to previous conflicts we have discussed, the losses totaled more than what was suffered throughout the entirety of the Russo-Japanese War. Put simply, August 1914 was a disaster for the Western Allies. With the month drawing to a close, it appeared that the short war predictions were indeed coming true. Joffrey had been beaten all the way back to Paris, and was arranging his forces into a defensive ring stretching from Paris, Verdun, and down the southern bank of the Meuse River. In the days following the frontier's debacle, Joffrey would dismiss numerous senior commanders, and restructured his army by pooling up reserves and recently mobilized regiments. One of these new armies, the 9th Army, would be commanded by Ferdinand Foch, whose name I can tell you is worth taking note of. For the British Expeditionary Force, things were not much better. The ferociousness of the fighting had shaken the nerves of Sir John French, who personally wrote to the Secretary of War, Lord Kitchener, offering his resignation for the poor showing. Kitchener, sensing his commander's unease, personally traveled to France, and assured him that support was on the way, and that now was not the time for emotions to get the best of him. Probably the best summary of the aftermath comes from the French historian Marc Bloch, who served with the French Third Army, and would later be executed by the Gestapo in World War II. Bloch writes, quote, these French peasants, fleeing before an enemy against whom we could not protect them from, left a bitter impression, possibly the most maddening that the war has inflicted on us. End quote. The Great Allied Retreat would continue until early September. But on the German side, things could not have looked brighter. Moltke's armies were now just 48 kilometers from Paris. General Alexander von Gluck, who had chased the British expeditionary force from Mons and Le Cateau, believed that the English had been sent back to the sea, and his optimism was reinforced with the news that the enemy had been in retreat along the 400-kilometer front. Soon, the white flags would be on display. Most importantly was that the advance was still on schedule. 
As long as the French had been knocked out by September 9th, the Germans would still be able to honour their commitment to the Austrians and begin the process of redeploying to the east. It looked as though it would all work out perfectly. But as is so often the case in military affairs, the scent of victory does not mean the ham was fully cooked. At command headquarters, Moltke had sensed that given the current situation facing the enemy, he could begin to break up his forces and get a head start on the final stage of the Schlieffen Plan, the redeployment to the east. Now, I could not find exact numbers, but there were 11 divisions which were selected, and generally, a division is anywhere between 10 to 30,000 men, so this was a pretty good chunk of manpower. Some were sent as an advance payment to the Austrians, while the others were sent northeast, to drive out remaining Belgian and French forces near the port city of Antwerp. By doing this, Moltke thought he would save time later, but he was also getting ahead of himself, and by doing so, significantly reduced the strength of his front line. On the night of September the 2nd, just a week before the encirclement of Paris was due, Moltke telegraphed the 1st Army commander Alexander von Gluck, with orders to attack Joffrey's army's position just southwest of the French capital. Moltke hoped that by wedging them out, it would allow the remaining German armies to catch them in the open, and prevent them from further retreat. After all, with their backs to Paris, the French army were faced with the decision to either attack head-on against the numerically superior Germans, or surrender the capital. And with the memories of 1870 still fresh, the latter was simply not an option. Gluck immediately recognized that what Moltke was asking for was dangerous. Gluck was aware that by turning his army southwest, it would expose his flank to the 200,000-strong French 6th Army, positioned between the Marne and the Oise River. Moltke assured his 1st Army general that he would be supported by Bombulo's 2nd, who would fall in behind and help hold the exposed line. Despite his continuous protests, Gluck eventually agreed, and his troops began to move. Unfortunately for Gluck, Moltke had based his decision on an inaccurate assessment of the French defenses. Between August the 29th and September 3rd, Joffrey received some welcome news, as the French 5th Army, commanded by General Louis-Franchin Desperet, who the British would nickname Desperate Frankie because no one could correctly pronounce the general's name, the French 5th had successfully retreated back across the River Marne, with the British Expeditionary Force close behind. With the arrival of two new forces, Joffrey now had an additional 300,000 troops plus heavy guns and equipment to help bolster the line. So on September the 3rd, as the German 1st Army made its way southwest past the French capital, Gluck found his army under fire from not only the French 6th, but also a resupplied British Expeditionary Force. Meanwhile, von Bülow's 2nd Army had crossed the Marne as well, but due to a mix-up, crashed headfirst into Desperate Frankie's 5th and the 9th Army under Ferdinand Foch. An ill-timed communication breakdown between Gluck and von Bülow would end the German advance. Gluck rotated his army to face the French 6th, but for some reason or another, the message never made its way to Bülow. The two German armies were now facing away from each other in a V-shape, but instead of a point, a 50-kilometer gap opened between them, which did not go unnoticed. Sensing the opportunity to expose this gaffe, the military governor of Paris, General Joseph Gallieni, reported the fighting to Joffrey, who, of course, needed no convincing. On the evening of September the 4th, Joffrey ordered the French 5th and the BEF through the gap. Back in Paris, Gallieni gave the order which would come to symbolize French determination throughout the First World War. Despite the brain fart, Glock and von Bülow quickly recognized the mistake, and their infantry began to put up a stronger fight. In order to get reinforcements to the bewildered 6th Army, which was holding the line against Gluck's 1st, Galliani employed the use of 600 Parisian taxicabs, which, through the night of September 6th to the morning of the 7th, would ferry some 6,000 reserves to the front, 
Thus, the miracle at the Marne legend was born, and the taxi cab forever changed the fortunes of the Allies. The Allied counterattack soon rippled along the front line, as Moltke's armies desperately tried to hold against the resurgent Allied assault. At this point of the battle, the weakness of Moltke's plans became clear. His soldiers, many of whom had been fighting since Belgium, were exhausted. Based on the time-sensitive nature of the Schlieffen plan, they had been on the move since August 4th, and had not been given adequate rest and recuperation. More crucially, their supply chain had been stretched too thin by this point, and neither Schlieffen nor Moltke had considered this in their planning. By the first week of September, their spearhead was at least 130 kilometers from their supply depots, so things like ammunition, medical supplies, weapons, and reinforcements could only be delivered by trucks, which were prone to breakdown and required continual maintenance. The only alternative was horse-drawn carts, which of course took only longer. I can't help but wonder how things would have been different if Moltke still had those 11 divisions on hand. The afternoon of September 9th saw the first Battle of the Marne draw to a close. Now, the German armies from Verdun to Paris were forced to retreat past the Assane River, some 150 kilometers from their September 4th positions. Total casualties, like the battles of the frontiers, remained high. 250,000 men for both sides, with the BEF taking another 13,000, bringing their total of 21,000 since August the 14th. But this time, the Western Allies could count this a victory. The First Battle of the Marne was not only their first major success, but the German defeat on September 9th came on the same day when Schlieffen had predicted the surrender of the French army. The German war plan, which they had staked on being successful, had failed. In the east, the Austrians would not be getting their reinforcements, and the Russians would soon complete mobilization. The severity of the situation was not lost on Berlin. In the days after, Moltke would suffer a nervous breakdown and was relieved from command. His replacement was someone the French would come to know quite well, Erich von Falkenhahn, who was serving as Minister of War at the time. It was Falkenhahn's policy of war by attrition which would lead to the Battle of Verdun beginning in late 1915. The Kaiser's government would do their best to keep the defeat on the Marne as quiet as possible. If the public or the Austrians were to find out, then it could spill the end of Germany's war. But they would not be given the time to consider their options. The Allies would continue to press their attack along the Assane, and next week we'll look at the rolling battles in which both armies would attempt to outflank the other. This resulting dance would push the belligerent armies to the banks of the North Sea, and leave behind a trail of trench networks which would come to dominate the Western Front for the next four years. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find Twitter and email information if you want to get in contact with me. Comments, criticisms, and compliments are always welcome. If you're interested in helping out The Great War Podcast, you can find us on iTunes and leave a five-star review, as that will help us stay afloat in the rankings and force me to continue turning out new episodes. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.